With the 19th pick of the 2020 MLB draft, the New York Mets select Pete Crow Armstrong, an outfielder from Harvard Westlake High School, North Hollywood, California. Commissioner Rob Manfred announced the first round pick of the New York Mets as we welcome you into another edition of the Metrospective. Pete McCarthy along with Tim Britton and uh, Tim draft there's actually like baseball news there's some things happening here if we don't have games at least uh, at least some draft picks even if we have to wait I don't know three four five years until we see any of the fruits of these labors you know writing for the athletic you're not writing quite on the the strict deadline you write on for a newspaper where you know the team makes a draft pick at nine o'clock and you've got to have a story on the entire guy's life history by nine thirty. but it was very strange on on Wednesday night to like oh like I'm writing late at night that's how I normally operate. I'm, a, you know, normally I'm writing from like 11 p.m. to midnight rather than just, you know, 11 a.m. Uh, in the morning and taking my time for a story due next week. It's it's it was kind of fun to get back to that and writing fast and looking up things under pressure and and asking questions, all those crazy things that reporters do <laughs> under normal circumstances. Yeah, the, we saw the Zoom call, and it looked like you had a nice Zoom set up. I don't know if you were uh, part of the Room Raider that goes around on social media, but I, I would have given you about a about an 8. I think you did well. You know, I put on a collared shirt for the first time in months. <laughs> uh, my hair reaches to the back of it uh, and even a bit beyond, which was a little little worrisome, but I think, you know, I cleaned up okay for, for my, my two seconds on camera. You pulled it off. Now, Brody Van Wagenen, I, I don't know where he gets his haircuts these days, but, but he's always uh, all, all dapper uh, no matter the occasion. And, and this is Brody Van Wagenen on the first-round selection for the Mets, uh, Crow Armstrong. We want to have players that believe in themselves. We want to have players that, that aren't afraid to show emotion on the field. And Pete's one of those guys. He's a Southern California kid. He, he, uh, he grew up in the same area I grew up. He knows how to play in front of front of the spotlight. He's one of these kids that's been on the national radar screen since he was 12 years old. He played on a USA team at 12. So he's been he's been a, a big fish in a big pond for a long time. And I think his personality and his confidence will play very well in New York City. You hear a lot about passion when it comes to Pete Crow Armstrong and also elite center field defense. That is Crow Armstrong's calling card. My big takeaway from that was that we have a national team for 12-year-olds. That's ridiculous. Under 12, uh, yeah. I, uh, but, yes, this is, you know, look in the, the, the Major League Baseball draft, you never draft for need. It's always best player available because you don't know what your need is going to be several years down the line. But this is a spot where the Mets feel like they got the best player available, and he also fills the, the organization's largest need in terms of being an outfielder a defensively oriented outfielder who can play center field uh they did a little bit of the same in their their uh second their second second round pick with isaiah green uh at the 69th pick overall the zach wheeler compensation pick but crow armstrong is a guy who you expect to stick in center field long term uh senior advisor scout to, to the amateur scouting tommy tanis said uh, you know he's a guy who can hit at the top of the order for you uh, so I think they, they like the all-around package uh, in this guy. And, and what, what Brody said was interesting that, you know, he's used to the spotlight. This isn't anything new for him. Uh, he's been that big fish in a big pond for a while. So the idea of him ad- adapting to the New York market down the line isn't as scary as it might be with, you know, when you draft someone out of like 
high school in Wyoming or something like that. Not that Brandon <laughs> Nimmo hasn't adapted perfectly to the environment either. Yeah, I think he's been okay. But I, I do sense maybe some similarities personality-wise to to even Pete Alonso in terms of some of the confidence and, and just a, a kid, right? This is someone out of high school. At least Alonso had some time at the University of Florida who just seems to be comfortable in his own skin and, and hear it from Crow Armstrong himself and what he's all about. You know, I love to display um, kind of the intangibles as well as, you know, what I can bring physically. But, you know, I feel like um, as a baseball player, I want to get, you know, the fans engaged and excited. So I definitely bring a lot of energy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big talker. I love to communicate. Um, that's obviously an important thing. But also I think, uh, you know, being vocal on the field is, you know, kind of all around a, a good thing to do. So um, energy, excitement. Um, I want to, you know, interact with the fans. I want to be, uh, you know, more than just a baseball player. Interact with the plants more than a player. I, look, I, those sound like some things that might have come out of Pete Alonzo's mouth that, at some point over the last six years. You know, it's funny. Usually these draft things are conference calls, but, you know, because everyone's used to Zoom now, we had the Zoom call on Wednesday. So while Crow Armstrong is saying those things, you could see the smiles on Brody Van Wagen and on Tommy Tanis, on Mark Tremuda, the guys who drafted him. Uh, you can see how happy they were. Uh, and, and if you've read, Molly Knight has a feature on Pete Crow Armstrong on The Athletic. She spent part of Wednesday afternoon with him before he was drafted. Uh, and you heard, you know, she got kind of into the, the maturity this kid has as an 18-year-old. The, he mentioned kind of the, the weirdness, the paradox of this being the happiest moment of your life happening at a really weird time uh, in terms of a, a global pandemic, a lot of... Uh, strife around the country at this moment in time that what should be a really happy time feels undercut a little bit by that uh, and that's not exactly how a lot of 18 year olds feel uh, so I thought that was interesting you got a, a glimpse into kind of the perspective that he has that maybe not a lot of kids his age do and you know look uh, he comes out of Harvard Westlake school which has been a hot spot of late for baseball players if I remember correctly it's in Studio City California within Los Angeles and you have a lot of people there that are involved in the film industry the television industry uh, Lucas Giolito his father was involved with that and, and Giolito came out of that school uh, years ago uh, also Max Fried and Jack Flaherty and not too different uh, Pete Crow Armstrong has a tie to the film world his mother was uh, an actress and was the mom in Little Big League. Uh, so that'll be the factoid that plays over and over again for Pete Crow Armstrong. But I you know, I do sense Giolito is still a young player within the realm of Major League Baseball, but he's been willing to speak out on certain things. Um, you know, there is... Look, it, 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 it's an area where you get quite the education. You have it a, you have the ability to feel what it is to have a, a platform to... to communicate uh, some you know sometimes difficult subjects and I, I think that you have some people in that area that probably are more prepared to to handle some of those things yeah it's, it's not a negative if you're an 18 year old kid and you don't know how to handle that kind of stuff yet because you know most don't but sure. it's certainly a positive especially when you're you're drafting for a big market team like New York where you're going to have to handle uh, some scrutiny and the media and and understand what it's like to play here uh, that you get exposed to that a little bit in maybe a different way uh, growing up in that area uh, the, the way he has. And that makeup is a, a key part for the Mets. This is the VP of International and Amateur Scouting, Tommy Tanis.
what separates players uh, is their mental toughness. Uh, and we've gone through great depths with Pete uh, through his Team USA career, through his high school career, through uh, individual meetings with Pete to determine uh, what kind of player he is, what kind of person he is. Uh, and he grades out as high as anyone we've taken in the first round. And that's some high praise because the Mets, they have had some success in the early rounds of the draft in recent years with position players going from Michael Conforto back to uh, Brandon Nemo and what he has done now, Jared Kelnick, what he might do and not a Mets uniform. But I, I think all guys that you know have proven they, they've had the makeup to succeed at the major league level and to say that Crow Armstrong exceeds those guys in this particular category and that's saying something yeah you know I, I think the easy comparison is to someone like Kellenic uh and I you know they're different styles of player Kellenic you weren't sure when they drafted him whether he would stick long term in center field but the the offense offensive potential was maybe a little bit greater he could probably stick as a corner outfielder with his 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 bat uh, and now it looks like he will play center field in the major leagues. Uh, Crow Armstrong, you feel better about the defense long term. Uh, it's really just a question of whether the bat comes along, uh, whether you know he's a guy who can hit uh, at the top of your order, or whether you're, you're thinking of him as a seven eight guy. Uh, but as, you know, when he's eighteen, you can kind of project his, his power has grown over the last couple of years. Uh, the Mets see more opportunity for that to grow going forward. Uh, and, and like we talked about, this is an area where. You know, they don't have a lot of outfield depth in the minor leagues. Uh, I don't think any of their top 10 to 15 prospects are really outfielders. You can always move guys to the corner outfield spots. You can't really move. It's a lot more difficult to move a guy into center uh, and expect him to really, really excel there. So I think this is filling a, a gap and a void in their minor league system while also getting uh, a high ceiling talent where, with where they were in the draft. Hey, you want to be strong up the middle. Uh, look, you, you talk about moving a corner player. It, it's hard to do that. It, it's not easy to just take a third baseman and throw him at first base or a second baseman and, and throw them in center field. But, you know, you have center field, shortstop, catcher. Those are the guys that you want to be strong. And if a shortstop doesn't work out, it's pretty easy to put them over at third base or second base. A center fielder, just slide them to left or right. So, you know, at the very least, if the bat can play a little bit, you have a ton of options if you are able to to draft some athletes, which is something the Mets, while they've had some successful hitters, it's so many guys on the corners and guys that they're forcing into spots that they don't really belong. Yeah, so it's not just a, a center fielder. It's it's an athlete up the middle, like you said. You know, Isaiah Green, uh, like we mentioned earlier, fits kind of the same, the same profile. Uh, they, they nabbed him later in the draft. Uh, so, you know, that's just – that's where – they needed infusion of young talent because you start looking down the line. Okay, last year you got Brett Beatty in the first round. That's a corner guy. You know, he's going to play first or third. Big power bat. You've got Mark Vientos in that same mold from the other side of the plate. You know, you've got Ronnie Mauricio, who might be a shortstop down the line, might be a third baseman. Uh, you've got Andres Jimenez, who's closer to the major leagues. You've got Francisco Alvarez as maybe your, your highest ceiling prospect as a catcher, but he's still a teenager. Uh, so you can imagine putting Crow Armstrong in that group and he fills another slot in there. Uh, and the other guys, if they have to move, they're not moving to center. So this is this is a guy who fits that uh, that need more so for them as you start to plot years down the road, uh, like, like everyone loves doing at this time of year. Hmm. 
And, and I think it's interesting, too, to harken back to an interview we had with Sandy Alderson a few episodes ago where he talked about their strategy was to take position players, whether it was collegiate position players or high school position players early on in the draft, that statistically these are the players that uh, work out the best. The pitchers, you just you have a lot more risk. And while, yeah, you could say it's a, a new regime with Brody Van Wagenen, Tommy Tanis is still the scouting director here, so I would imagine a lot of the strategy within the draft remains from uh, you know what Sandy Alderson told us a, a couple years ago, and I, or a couple of episodes ago, and I think this feeds into that. Yeah, you know, you look at basically the last decade of, of their drafts, it's been college pitchers uh, or high school hitters. You know, there's, there's the occasional exception to that, uh, Conforto being one of them, but otherwise it, it's largely that blueprint, kind of the high-end uh, hitter out of high school, you're, you're looking for a, a bigger ceiling. Uh, whereas, you know, they, they really don't like drafting high school pitchers. They haven't done it uh, in the first round proper this century. Uh, they did it in the sandwich round a little bit. Um, but it's been a really long time since they've taken that risk. Uh, so that, you know, it, it fits from, a, you know, this draft fit them well from a profile standpoint because it was strongest in college pitching and high school bats. Uh, and in Crow Armstrong, they got someone who, you know, at the start of this, this year, maybe if he has a full high school season and really excelled, would probably have been a top 10 pick. Uh, so the, the hope is, you know, between him and, and JT Ginn, who they got in the second round, we can talk mm-hmm. about that. Uh, guys who came into this year maybe as two top 20 prospects, and they, they were able to land them at 19 and 52. Yeah, Ginn uh, out of Mississippi State, uh, coming off Tommy John surgery now, so that'll be the, the hope that they're able to sign him. But it's, it, you know, it's interesting, with Major League Baseball's draft, if you're not really familiar with it, it doesn't line up like the NFL draft. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Guys aren't drafted in the order of how talented they are necessarily. There's a lot of financials that play into it where maybe you go over slot, uh, they call it, and in one spot and then you try to be cheap later in the draft and you could pay more than it than it's slotted so you get a more talented player later that other teams might have passed on because they thought he wasn't signable there's just a lot more variables than you have in, in other drafts and we saw the Mets some of that paid off where uh, they were able to make it work and, and draft some high-end prospects last year later in the draft than you might expect. And JT, again, would be another one of those situations where, hey, there's a guy with a lot of talent. Uh, yes, he's coming off Tommy John, but to land him in the second round, you, you might be able to get a bargain because he's not he, he has the ability to be ranked higher than that. Yeah, it's it's not just talent evaluation. There's also like a financial bookkeeping component to to doing this. I remember I wrote a story last year about how they landed Matthew Allen in the third round, a guy who most people thought was a top 20 prospect in that mm-hmm. draft. They got him uh, in the 80s. Uh, I think it was pick 89 uh, because, you know, their their area scout, it was John Updike in Florida, really felt he wanted to sign. Uh, they they kind of knew they had a better idea of what that number was going to be, and then you got to kind of scramble and make sure the guys you draft after uh, are going to sign for low enough bonuses where you can save the money to apply it for a pick earlier. With uh, with JT Ginn, you know that they're taking him earlier than they took Allen. They don't have to find as much money, but they also don't have the same kind of time to find money because it's five rounds instead of ten rounds that your your slot money applies to. So basically, that slot is 1.4 million. Ginn is a guy who two years ago was drafted in the first round at number 30 by the Dodgers, turned down their money uh, to go to Mississippi State. Uh, you know, he has the Tommy John now. That that clearly changes probably his perception of, of 
risk and reward in terms of staying in school. He's still got leverage, though, where he's got uh, three years of remaining eligibility uh, as a draft-eligible sophomore. All the the, the NCAA uh, allowed an extra year of eligibility for all its spring athletes this year because of the coronavirus. But you look at it, you know, the Mets took in the third round, they took Anthony Walters, a shortstop out of San Diego State, uh, not a top 200 prospect in the draft, probably saving some money there. We're recording this before their fourth and fifth round picks, but I feel pretty confident guessing those fourth and fifth round picks will be similar type guys where you can sign them for maybe, uh, you know, you sign them for five figures rather than the six figure bonuses they're slotted for. And then you apply that money to Ginn and you get that 1.4 million up to 2.4, 2.5. It was 2.5 for Allen last year. You know, if you need to go to three, maybe they can make that work. Uh, but I don't think they would have taken him if they didn't have a, a, a pretty good idea of their ability to sign him the way it was last year with Allen. And, and people wonder why the Major League Baseball draft isn't more popular. <laughs> I could be like, it's so trying to wrap your head around this stuff. It, it's ridiculous. And, you know, I'm someone who's broadcasted some of the Major League Baseball drafts in the in the past, been a part of it in the you know rounds two through five and, and beyond when I was at MLB.com. It, it's it's nonsense. It's not players ranked in the way that you think they would because the financials play such a key part in it. So not only do you have players that won't show up in the major leagues for you know, typically at least a year, uh, not only do you have players that aren't on your screens every Saturday, like, say, college football or a, a huge tournament like college basketball in, in March in, in March Madness, uh, they're relatively anonymous to common fans and then on top of that you have all this financial nonsense thrown into it it's not it's not accessible i feel to everyday fans are you suggesting that wasn't the most exciting two-minute monologue i've delivered on this podcast yet (laughs) because because it's not your fault it's a good explanation (laughs) of the nonsense that is the major league baseball draft it has so many things working against it and then you add in all of these complicated rules. How is anybody supposed to understand it? That's why I'm watching the MLB Network uh, broadcast, and everybody's being compared to a Hall of Famer. It's like, is this the only way that we can make this enticing, that every pitcher is Justin Verlander or Jack Morris? Like, come on. You don't see guys compared to, like, Wally Whitehurst back in the day? Something <laughs> like that? Like, you didn't know. see that. You know, it's like a, cu- a couple podcasts ago we talked about Marcus Stroman and, and maybe extending him, and I compared him to Homer Bailey, and you just groaned on me. Like, you know, <laughs> well, you're not going to make those comparisons because it's that's It's realistic. I get it. It's it's realistic. I get it. It's just, you know, I mean, come on. How much have we got to dress this stuff up? And I'll tell you, the other thing that I took away from watching this thing, after watching the NFL draft, what, a month and a half ago? Uh, Joe Burrow's on the couch with his parents. Like, everybody's quarantining. You don't see a whole lot of big families and, and stuff. Now, I, you're seeing 20, 30 people hanging out in the living room. Nobody's wearing a mask. I was just like, you know, just walking around the streets in Queens. I see 90% of people wearing masks. I, I don't see a lot of people here. I'm not hanging out with a whole lot. So, it, it's just, it jumped out at me how different it was than the way the NFL draft was treated just a, a month and a half ago. Yeah, I mean, you looked at the, it looked like some prospects had like rented out restaurants and had more than a hundred people there for them. Uh, that was definitely uh, you know you and me living in Queens. No, it's it's not quite like that here. Uh, <laughs> you know, having not seen my parents in months, uh, yeah. so uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully that doesn't lead to anything for any of these prospects or, or for anyone else there down the line. You know, that that's everyone's concern at this point. 
All right, uh, let's leave uh, on a happier note here. Pete Crow Armstrong, the Mets' first-round pick. Here you go. Fun fact. Favorite movie, Shawshank Redemption. All right, how about that? A kid out of high school loves Shawshank Redemption, even though the movie came out eight years before he was born. <laughs> Kid's born what? in 2002, Tim. I love it. He said his favorite movie was Shawshank Redemption. He said Ken Griffey Jr. was his favorite player of all time, even though I didn't get to see that much of him. It's, wow. you know, I feel like, like culture has stopped or halted uh, that every, you know, Shawshank Redemption is going to be everyone's favorite movie going forward. Ken Griffey Jr. is still the most popular player uh, in Major League Baseball, despite retiring more than a decade ago. Well, he could have gotten away with Little Big League as his favorite movie, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. He'll hear enough about it in the uh, months, years, and decades ahead, uh, more likely than not. But that'll do it uh, for our Metrospect. We'll be back with you on Tuesday morning. Take care, Tim. Adios, Pete.